Well, if you've been involved with the church for any sort of length of time, you will realise that the church is not just a random selection of people turning up once a week to hear from one guy. There's a bit of organisation to the church. And then the question comes, well, how is the church organised? How does it run? How does it operate? Who's in charge? Who leads these things? Um, Those sorts of questions aren't actually the simplest to decide upon. And that's evidenced by the various different numbers of denominations that you can see throughout the Christian world. Different denominations of churches which all have slightly different opinions on how the church ought to be run. But those different opinions don't mean that the Bible says nothing on how the church ought to be run. The Bible does give us instructions about the organisation of a church. Uh, But the question is, um, how, um, how do those leaders within the church rule? How do they... Organizers, what are the limits of the authority of the elders in the church? In other words, what are the elders and deacons, those people given to preside over the church and its activities and its ministries? Well, we've been going through 1 Timothy in our evening services, and we've got to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is uh, perhaps the longest passage in the Bible that we've got that specifically addresses the role of elders and deacons the officers in the church, Uh, but it's not the only passage and we don't get all the answers to our questions from this one passage. So what we're going to try and do this evening is go through, see what this does teach us, but in order to really get a grasp of what eldership is and what they are supposed to be doing for the church, we're going to need to draw on some of the other passages of scripture that speak to the same topic. Now, if you've got a green sheet, I've tried to... um, really give my, give my points of where we're going uh, in the headings. And perhaps more so than usual, the, the words that are on there have been designed to really give you what I'm trying to say. If I struggle to um, get it over in, in what I'm saying in preaching, then I hope that those points on the sheet will be at least some bullet point reminders of what I've been trying to say. So I hope they will be useful perhaps more so than in other weeks. Uh, and you'll notice on that sheet that I've said the first thing is that church officers by which I mean the elders and the deacons, church officers are given to enable and support the church in its mission. That's what I believe the elders and the deacons are for. They're given to enable and support the church in its mission. So that leads to the question, well, what is the church and its mission? And 1 Timothy 3 gives us a helpful summary of what the church is supposed to be doing. It's not at the top of the passage, it's at the bottom of the passage. And it's a part of the book that we touched on the first time we opened 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Well, I'll start reading from verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. What is the church? The church is God's household. It's a family of believers. The church is therefore a place of care and nurture, a safe space for Christians where they can be helped and instructed and built up and prepared for their lives of service. The church is God's household, a family. The church is the church of the living God, it says. The church exists for this living God. It's his church. We exist to glorify him. And so worship is a big part of what we do. 
when we gather together twice on a Sunday, we call these worship services. Because our aim is to gather together to worship God, to glorify him. And in order to glorify God, in order to worship him, then knowing God is an imperative. We don't worship, uh, this isn't the church of any God. It's not the church of the false God. It's not the church of the idol. It's the church of the living God. The living God who's not a product of our imaginations. The living God who is and who was and who always will be. It's his church. And so if we're going to worship him, we need to worship him not with ideas that we make up, but according to the way he teaches us in his word. And the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church's mission is to be the foundation of the truth. And we thought about that a few weeks back. We're here to protect and preserve the truth that God has given us. We're also to be the pillar of truth. Holding that truth up high so that the whole world can see it. So what is the church? If you're going to summarise those points, you could say the church exists to glorify God. And it glorifies God as his people seek to know him through his word and we seek to proclaim him to the world. So the church exists to glorify God. We glorify God by knowing him through his word and proclaiming him to the world. Now that's not a definitive definition of what the church is. There'd be more things you could add in there. You'll notice that there's no mention of Jesus Christ in that definition. But according to this verse, chapter 3, verse 15, it's a helpful summary, I think, of what Paul thinks the church is. And that's the background of why he launches into talking about elders and deacons. That's what the church is. So how does the church operate? If you look at something like a, an engineering company, you'll notice that most of the most of the company's mission is achieved by those at the top of the company. You've got a chief engineer, a chief designer, a chief financial officer. You've got a CEO who directs the company in which way they're going. And it's those people at the top who make all the decisions about what are we going to make, how are we going to make it, what are we going to price it as, where are we going to sell it, and so on. And all the people underneath them, the further down you get, the progressively less and less they do contributing to this mission. So by the time you get to the bottom, you've got one guy who's, uh, you know, he's designing screws or something for this part. Uh, and you've got one guy who's just uh, counting pennies and, and, and making sure that they all add up on the, on the books. But the mission of the company is so far removed from what they're doing. It's such a much bigger thing that really can say the mission of the company is only really being achieved by those at the top. Those who've got a strong hand in the design and the procurement and the sales of the product that they're making. That's how a company might work. An engineering company, for example. But what about the, the church? Does the church run on the same model? Do we expect the, the pastors and the elders and the deacons, those officers of the, the church, do we expect those to be the ones who are achieving the mission while everybody else is just kind of in a, a supporting role? Well, no, I think actually the opposite is going on in the church. And I take that, for, for example, from... Uh, I'm going to read to you now from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, the same guy who's written 1 Timothy, says this. It was God who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. To prepare God's people for works of service. 
so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's a long sentence. Uh, Let me unpack it for you a little bit. Paul's saying the goal is for, for us all, for every member of the church, for us all to reach unity in the faith, for us all to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God, and for us all to become mature. The goal of the work of the church is for every member to achieve these things, for every member to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And how is that goal achieved? Well, he says, God has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. He's given different people different roles. But these different roles are given in order to prepare God's people, all the rest, for works of service. They are given in order to help those people achieve that goal that has previously been stated. So the church doesn't operate like the engineering company. It's not that those at the top are the ones doing the mission and everybody else is supporting. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Paul's vision of the church is that every member is a minister. Every member is serving God. Every member is growing to maturity. Every member is going to reach unity in the faith. Every member is growing in their knowledge of the Son of God. Every member is here to glorify God and to make him known in the world. The mission of the church is achieved by every member of the church. And God has given some to be pastors and teachers in order to prepare God's people for those works of service. That's what's meant if you ever hear the term every member ministry. That's what, that's what uh, preachers or teachers or, or leaders are trying to get to. They're trying to emphasise this isn't just about the leaders doing their work and other people supporting. The church is a place where every member serves God in important and valuable ways. Every member contributes to this mission that we have together. And so the internal structures of governance, the diaconate, the eldership and whatever other rotors or committees we might dream up, they're not the main ministry of the church. They are given to support the work of the church in its ministry. So then, what role do the elders have? What role does the leadership have? In chapter 3, you might have noticed um, that it doesn't actually use the word elder. Chapter 3, verse 1, it talks about overseers. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach. In some translations, you might even have bishop there. Um, are these? Am I, is it a genuine... Um, uh, is it legitimate, let's say, to refer to these overseers as elders? Well, I would say so because these overseers, the qualifications that are then given include things like governing over the people. Verse 4, for example, these overseers must manage his own family well in order, verse 5, that he knows how to manage and govern the church. So he's doing a bit of governing. He's also doing a bit of teaching. Verse 2, these overseers must be able to teach. Now, if you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 17 of 1 Timothy... He describes the elders, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. 
So what the Bible, we've got two different names here, overseers and elders. But what the Bible does is it gives the same responsibilities to each of those. And so I'm inferring that whether, whether we're reading about overseers or whether we're reading about elders, we're really reading about the same office. Now, that can help us understand what these elders are supposed to do. One of the things is that they are overseers. They are governing. They are ruling over. They are, they are managing the affairs of the church. They're also teaching. We've seen that as well in verse 2. And there's another role that the elders have, which you pick up when you see another name given to them. Sometimes these elders are called pastors. That was from Ephesians 4. Some to be pastors and teachers. Pastor uh, comes from the word to shepherd. Uh, 1 1 Peter talks similarly about the the elders shepherding the flock that God has given them, tending the flock. And so the elders of a church are given to govern over the affairs, to manage the church's running, given to teach the people, uh, especially in regard to protecting from false teaching as well as presenting truth. And for pastoring and caring, shepherding the flock that God has given. That's what the elders are designed to do. Now we've not spent an awful lot of time in 1 Timothy chapter 3 yet. But I hope that you can see how even if not explicitly stated, these principles that I've outlined, that the church is every member working together, that the elders are here to support it, and that there are these three key areas that elders are engaged in. Teaching, governing, shepherding. Those principles underlie what's going on in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And those principles underlie Paul's description of the church, especially in verse 15. God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. The elders, are, uh, the church officers are given to enable and to support the church in its mission. Secondly, because of their role... Officers, that is elders and deacons, should be carefully selected. Chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, an overseer, he desires a noble task. This isn't just any ordinary job. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a simple thing to do. Uh, verse 7. These overseers are under the attack of the devil. He must also have a good reputation from outsiders so that it will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The devil seeks to trap and catch out these elders. They are under unique temptations. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Tempted to be arrogant and proud of their position. The role of elder, leader of a church, is a noble task. And so Paul says to Timothy, and the church that Timothy is ruling over in Ephesus, is saying, carefully choose who you place in this role as elder. Now first we'll consider what Paul says about the elders. I imply that the elder must be a man. I imply that because um, verse 2 The overseer must be able to teach. So I'm skipping from the beginning to the end of the verse there. The overseer must be able to teach. This is one of the requirements of the elder. However, last week we were hearing from chapter 2 verse 12. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So we imply, therefore, that elders should be men because of the requirement for them to be able to teach and exert authority within the church. Uh, Paul also emphasises the right character of the men who are chosen for the eldership. He doesn't focus on this teaching ability. He doesn't, he doesn't mention the teaching ability. He just say these men have got to be able to teach. But he doesn't qualify that. He doesn't say they're able to teach really well, for example. The qualification is that they are able to teach. Now that's interesting, and it's worth thinking about why he doesn't emphasise those points. It's perhaps worth thinking about why churches today do emphasise those points. Is it right, or is it wrong for us to emphasise that? Rather, what Paul emphasises is the character of these men. And for the elders, there are, well, I counted 15 descriptions of the character of these men. It would be worth, especially at a time when the church is considering who to have as a new elder, or whether to um, assign an elder a new term of office, it would be worth just considering each of those characteristics in turn. We're not going to do that tonight. I've grouped them in three broad categories. And these categories are not categories that, that are in the text. They're, uh, they're just, as, as you read through these different characteristics, you can roughly group them together. So the first uh, group of characteristics is that these men must have a good reputation. So that would be things like, um, verse 2, he must be above reproach. He must be respectable. He must be hospitable. When people look at this man's life, he must have good respect from both those within the church and those from outside the church. Verse 7, for example, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. Why is the reputation of a man important if he's going to be a leader of the church? Well, um, I would suggest because of what Paul considers the church to be. We've thought about in chapter 3, verse 15, he said the church is the pillar of truth. The church is holding out the truth to the world, displaying it to others. As the world looks at the church, what would it do to the witness of the church if the leaders are disrespected or scandalous or even just disrespectful? It would do no help to the church in in achieving its mission of, of displaying the truth to the world. It wouldn't help convince people, win people over, persuade them. And so Paul says one of the important things you've got to look for in a man that you choose as an elder, is that he is respectable to those outside the church so that he can especially help the church achieve its mission in being a pillar of truth, in holding it up. The second group of characteristics is what I've called self-control. So I would include in this group, for example, uh, things like he's told to be temperate. Um, Often we refer to temperate, to be temperate, often means colloquially, to to not drink alcohol. But there's another qualification later on that he's not given to drunkenness. So I think in this sense, temperate means, in respect to his character, to be sober-minded, you might say. Uh, To to not be rash in his judgments. He's got to be temperate. He's got to be self-controlled. He's got to be not given to drunkenness, not a lover of money, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. He's got to have control over his emotions and the way that he acts. 
why they think this group of traits is important. Well, in 1 Timothy, there is, especially in this chapter, there is a strong contrast here between what these elders should be like and what the false teachers in the church are like. So we've come across the false teachers. For example, in chapter 1, we heard that they were devoted to false myths and, and genealogies. And because of their devotion to those false things, they've, chapter 1, verse 6, turned away from faith, a pure heart. Their life has has been shown to be one of ill faith and impure hearts. In chapter 2, Paul's had to um, exhort the people, the men, to pray without anger or disputing. In contrast to those, some in the church, who would pray, uh, who, who who would live lives marked by anger and disputing. And in chapter 6, Paul speaks against those who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And so in contrast to the way that Paul's describing these false teachers, Paul's saying, look for your elders who are the exact opposite. Look for elders who are not lovers of money. Look for elders who aren't given to drunkenness. Look for elders who are self-controlled. Look for elders who aren't just interested in quarrelling and getting into bickering and fights. Look for people who are not violent but gentle. Look for people whose lives display something of the grace and the goodness that they've received in Jesus Christ. Look for people whose lives match up with their confession of faith. And the third group of characteristics I've called their home life. And so you'll notice that Paul says that these men um, ought to be the husband of but one wife, or a one-woman man, literally. And that he must manage his own family well. He must have a respectable life at home. Now why is that important? Well, the answer is really given to us in verse 5. Because the running of a family is so similar to the running of a church. And chapter 3 verse 5, if you lack control in the family at home, how are you going to be able to maintain and keep control within the church? So that's one reason. And then the second reason I think this is important is, again, back to verse 15. The church is the foundation of truth. The church is to be protecting the truth and ensuring that what is preached is the truth and making sure that the the church is in line with orthodoxy. And the leadership of the church need to be able to bring false teachers under discipline. They need to be able to recognise false teaching and put the false teachers out of the church. And that discipline that needs to happen, well, the stereotypical relationship in where where discipline happens is that between a father and a son. If a man can't, can't discipline his sons at home, how will he discipline others in the church? How will he protect the church? How will he enable the church to achieve its mission of being a foundation of the truth? So that's a few points about, points about elders. Uh, What about deacons? First question, should deacons be men or women? Um, In verse 8, in the NIV, it says, Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect. You might be forgiven for for saying, well, there's your answer. Deacons are to be men. It literally says it. Um, However, um, in the the Greek, the word men isn't there. And so it's, it's a fair translation to include the word, but it's not a necessary word in the translation. It just says, deacons are to be worthy of respect. So, 
As you read through these verses about deacons, should they be men or women? Well, there's nothing in the verses that explicitly state that they must be men. Remember when we were thinking about elders, there was an implication there which should elders should be men. We don't have those same details here as we think about deacons. Likewise, in, in verse 11, it says, In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect. However, it, it just says women there. And again, it's a fair translation to translate it as wives, but it could equally be women or deaconesses. Um, the word likewise as well in verse 11, in the, uh, in the same way, it says in the NIV. Um, you, you get the same word crop up in verse 8. So what's happened is you've got these description of elders. He says, likewise deacons, and then he says, likewise women. So that might lead you to think, oh, well, elders, another group deacons, another group, these women. So those are the, the arguments in favour of deacons being women. Uh, but some of the arguments against is that, well, if this is a separate uh, group of people, what are the differences between these female deacons and the male deacons? What are, what, there aren't any differences really in the, in the work that they are to do or the way that they are to serve. And so it doesn't necessarily uh, make sense that Paul should include a separate section for them with so little to distinguish them and define them. And if these are two groups of people, first deacons, then deaconesses, why does he then switch back in verse 12 to talking about deacons? And thirdly, in the section, in verse 11, where he's talking about these women, perhaps who might be described as deaconesses, um, there's no mention of marital faithfulness there. However, he does talk about deacons being faithful to one wife and elders being faithful to one wife. So why would he talk about elders and deacons, but not deaconesses? And a good explanation is because he's not talking about deaconesses. He's talking about the wives of the deacons who he's already said should be faithful to one wife. I hope that little explanation just lets you see that it's difficult to be dogmatic on this issue. Um, Holywell has a position, which is that we don't have female deacons. The purpose of that position is, is to try and to be obedient to God's word. It's not defined by what we think women should be or shouldn't be doing in the church because of cultural values or, or norms or, or history of the church. It's defined because we want to try and be faithful to God's word. However, you must realise and must respect that it's difficult to be precise about what God's word is telling us on this issue. And so we've taken a position... And in conscience, we try and stick to that position. But we recognise that there might be others in the church who disagree. And if you disagree, we would ask that you would be patient with us and bear with us. But also realise that it's not. It, it, you can't be dogmatic on either side. You can't definitely say that women should be deacons. You can't definitely say that women shouldn't. Um, what about the roles of deacons? Um, what are the differences between the elders and the deacons? Well, the deacons' qualifications, just like the elders, include characteristics um, that refer to self-control, that refer to their home life, and refer to their respectability, just like the elders. And in these verses, the only difference really, tangibly, is the difference that deacons are not required to be able to teach. 
um, whereas the elders were significantly to be able to teach. Some use this difference and um, also look at Acts chapter 6 and see how the Perhaps they, they, they describe Acts chapter 6 as one of the first appointing of deacons. What happened in Acts chapter 6 is there were a lot of new believers coming into the church. They needed caring for. And the apostles were spending so much time caring for these people that were coming into the church, handing out food and, and bread and money and so on, that they said, look, we need some people to, to help us with this. And so some men were chosen uh, to wait on tables, as it were, to hand out the, the food and, and things, care for people in the church so that the apostles could be committed to God's word and to prayer. So some use that example in Acts 6, and some use the distinction here, and they, they, make a, they draw a line between elders and deacons and say, look, uh, elders are for the preaching of the word and for prayer, and deacons are for doing all the practical things within the church. And that might be a helpful rule to, to set off on, but again, I don't think it's uh, I don't think an issue we can be dogmatic on. If you look at verse nine, the deacons must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. So it's not like the deacons have absolutely no reference to the teaching that's going on in the church. It's not like they have no reference to the truth of the faith that has to be protected and held up high. The deacons do have a role. Uh, in, uh, or at least they, they must be able to hold on to these truths and not just in a superficial way but the deep truths of the faith they're described as. So perhaps drawing a sharp line between the, between the elders and deacons is uh, a little unhelpful at points and it's likely that what Paul's saying is that the deacons they don't have the authoritative teaching roles but they do support the elders in the roles that they are doing. Um, on this point, it should be noted that these lists are not exhaustive. And so this is not all that we should be looking for in a person when we're considering who to choose as elders or deacons. You can tell they're not exhaustive, partly because uh, other similar lists, for example those in Titus chapter 1, don't include all the details here. And they include some other details. And the other thing is, these lists are remarkably weak on issues that you would count really to be quite important. Whereabouts does it describe that elders should even be Christians? Now it does kind of mention it, um, uh, he must not be a recent convert. But if he's not a convert at all, he's not a recent convert, is he? You know. But you would assume that Paul wants the elders of the church to be, uh, to be Christians, to be men of faith, to be trusting Christ and to be obedient to him. There's nothing mentioned about prayer here, for example. But you'd want an elder, a leader of the church, to be a prayerful man. There's nothing mentioned about sexual temptation, for example. But you wouldn't want a man who succumbs to sexual temptation. So, um, these lists are not exhaustive. And so it begs the question, well, if they're not exhaustive, what on earth are they doing here? What are they written for? Is this just a start of a tent to get us off on the right foot? Well, I think what they're doing is they're responding to a situation. At the end of the chapter, we've referred to this verse time and time again. Chapter 3, verse 15. Paul's writing so that people would know how to conduct themselves in God's household. In contrast to what has been going on before this letter has arrived. 
in contrast to the false teaching, in contrast to people living lives which are separate from the faith that they profess. And so these requirements of elders are given to counteract the issues that are going on in the church. And so for us, they do serve as pointers to help us get to the right place of uh, what sort of man are we looking for when we're looking for an elder or a deacon. But they're not the definitive uh, definition. Paul's saying, appoint elders and deacons, but don't delegate your responsibilities to them. Don't appoint deacons and elders so that you can sit back and relax and let them do all the work. Don't allow them to be the ones who fulfill your responsibility to obedience and to growing in holiness and to knowing more of the Son of God and to sharing the truth with the world around you. These things are written so that you will know how to behave, so that you, the people in the church, know how they ought to conduct themselves. The church exists to glorify God. We do that by getting to know him better so that we can worship him in truth. And we do that by proclaiming his name to the world around us. That's not a job that's just limited to the elders and the deacons, the leadership of the church. That's a job for every single one within the congregation. Paul's written so that you know how you ought to conduct yourselves in God's household.